You've done it now. Your curiosity has betrayed you. You've made it to the end of the woods, and you have stumbled upon the monster's lair. I am the monster himself, J.D. Hutchins, and this is where I dwell. I live here with my bevy of strange, fiendish folks, friends, and other monsters. You're brave enough to dive into the depths with us. There's only one problem. Once you're here, there's no leaving until I let you. So sit back and get comfortable if you can. Listen to my strange tales, my terrifying horror stories, and my weird and wonderful facts, and enjoy. This is The Monster's Lair. Alright guys, it's that time again. This is the not-so-fun part. Uh, We have to discuss COVID-19. I know you didn't come to this podcast to hear someone else talk about COVID-19 and the fact that it's already everywhere in the media. It's already on every show you watch and every show that you listen to. Everyone's talking about it. Everyone's dealing with it. And I know you didn't come here to listen to someone else talk about COVID-19, but if I'm not talking about it, I'm not doing my job as a podcast personality, and I'm not doing my civil duty and giving an advisory. So with that being said, let's go to what the World Health Organization recommends to help spread, help prevent the spread of COVID-19. Stay home save lives, help stop the coronavirus. Do the five to stay alive. Number one, stay home as much as you can. Number two, keep a safe distance. Number three, wash hands often. Number four, cover your cough. And number five, if you're sick, call ahead and stay home. With more on our feelings about COVID-19. I have my friend Brian Duncans who would like to say a few words on his COVID advisory. Stay the fuck at home. With that being said, if you are an essential employee, If you are a nurse, a doctor, work anywhere in the medical field or the pharmacies or any of the drugstores, I just want to say keep up the great work. You guys are out on the front lines whether you want to be or not, and you are appreciated. How's it going, everybody? My name is Thanklord Trap God, and I play bass for the Moonjacks, and you're listening to The Monster's Lair on Spotify. It's me, Heavy Metal, 
heavy metal was. Just another form of rock and roll. You know what I think's fucking funny? All the fucking imagery that comes with heavy metal. About the deepest fucking levels of hell and evil and fire breathing and bad fucking ass. And most of the people in rock and roll are just fucking punks. Just fucking punks. Those big fucking beasts. Those graphics on your t-shirts. How many fucking push-ups you think one of those fucking monsters could do? Fucking millions. You wanna be a fucking monster? Be it body, mind, and soul. Every fucking thing. Go on that fucking stage. I saw that fucking belly. Rip that fucking gut into an eight pack. Look like a fucking god up there. Look like the fucking images I put on those t-shirts. Be something. This is J.D. Hutchins, and you're listening to The Monster's Lair. Ladies and gentlemen, ghosts and ghouls, friends and fiends, welcome to The Monster's Lair. I am your host, J.D. Hutchins, the trailer park monster himself, the monotone with a microphone, your favorite voice, of podcasts everywhere. This is going to be a great episode. This episode, we are talking about poltergeists. Not the movie, not the movies, I should say. The actual entity behind poltergeists and poltergeist activity. This is going to be an interesting one. We're going to tell some stories of first-hand uh, accounts, first-hand eyewitness stories. So stick around. We're going to take a deep dive into poltergeists. My name's Christy, and you're listening to The Monster's Lair. So, what is a poltergeist? Well, a quick search of the word's definition describes a poltergeist as a ghost or spirit supposed to manifest its presence by noises, knockings, and the manipulation of objects. The world poltergeist has its origin in Germany in 1840. It is a compound of poltern, which means to make a noise, knock, or rattle, and geist, which simply means ghost. Poltergeists have been documented as early as the 1600s in countries from all around the globe. Poltergeists are not your everyday run-of-the-mill ghosts. While ghosts appear merely as apparitions, voices, or fog or mist, even the most terrifying ghosts are passive in nature. Poltergeists purportedly have the ability to bite, kick, punch, slap, scratch, push, and throw and manipulate objects. Even the tamest poltergeist is said to be capable of causing physical harm or damage. Due to this fact, poltergeists are some of the more terrifying and interesting manifestations of paranormal phenomenon that are believed to exist. One could even say that 
poltergeist tales are moving. Get it? Get it? As a result of the interest in these stories, poltergeists were the subject of a blockbuster hit in the 80s, which cemented their place in pop culture, modern vernacular, and another type of geist, the zeitgeist. German in origin, it's a compound meaning the zeit, which is time, and geist, again, which we know translates to ghost, or more appropriately in this case, spirit. The definition of zeitgeist, meaning the spirit or mood of a particular period of history as shown by the ideas and beliefs of the time. One of the earliest documented cases of poltergeist activity, even once led to belief and also to world-renowned fame of twin sisters and the formation of an American religion. In the 19th century, in the Hydesville, New York bedroom of Maggie and Kate Fox, the seeds of America's spiritualism movement would be planted. So without further ado, let's dive into the depths on this episode of The Monster's Lair and dive into the depths specifically of poltergeists. So let's start with the Fox sisters. One of the greatest religious movements of the 19th century began in the bedroom of two young girls living in a farmhouse in Hydesville, New York. On a late March day in 1848, Margareta Maggie Fox, 14, and Kate, her 11-year-old sister, waylaid a neighbor, eager to share an odd and frightening phenomenon. Every night, around bedtime, they said, they heard a series of raps on the walls and furniture, raps that seemed to manifest with a peculiar otherworldly intelligence. The neighbor, skeptical, came to see for herself. Joining the girls in a small chamber they shared with their parents. While Maggie and Kate huddled together on their bed, their mother, Margaret, began the demonstration. Now count five, she ordered, and the room shook with the sound of five heavy thuds. Count fifteen, she commanded, and the mysterious presence obeyed. Next, she asked it to tell the neighbor's age. Thirty-three distinct raps followed. If you are an injured spirit, she continued, manifest by three raps. And it did. Margaret Fox did not seem to consider the date, March 31st, April Fool's Eve, and the possibility that her daughters were frightened, not by an unseen presence, but by the expected success of their prank. The Fox family deserted the house and sent Maggie and Kate to live with their older sister, Leah Fox Fish, in Rochester. The story might have died there were it not for the fact that Rochester was a hotbed for reform and religious activity. The same vicinity, the Finger Lakes region of New York State, gave birth to both Mormonism and Millerism, the precursor to Seventh-day Adventism. Community leaders Isaac and Amy Post were intrigued by the Fox's sister's story and the subsequent rumor that the spirit likely belonged to a peddler who had been murdered in the farmhouse five years beforehand. 
A group of Rochester residents examined the cellar of the Fox's home, uncovering strands of hair and what appeared to be bone fragments. The posts invited the girls to a gathering at their home, anxious to see if they could communicate with spirits in another locale. I suppose I went with as much unbelief as Thomas felt when he was introduced to Jesus after he had ascended, Isaac Post wrote. But he was swayed by very distinct thumps under the floor and several apparent answers. He was further convinced when Leah Fox also proved to be a medium, communicating with the Post's recently deceased daughter. The Post rented large, the largest hall in Rochester, and 400 people came to hear the mysterious noises. Afterward, Amy Post accompanied the sisters to a private chamber where they disrobed and were examined by a committee of skeptics who found no evidence of a hoax. The idea that one could communicate with spirits was hardly new. The Bible contains hundreds of references to angels administering to man, but the movement known as modern spiritualism sprang from several distinct revolutionary philosophies and characters. The ideas and practices of Franz Anton Mesmer, an 18th century Australian healer, had spread to the United States and by the 1840s held the country in thrall. Mesmer proposed that everything in the universe, including the human body, was governed by a magnetic fluid that could become imbalanced, causing illness. By waving his hands over a patient's body, he induced a mesmerized hypnotic state that allowed him to manipulate the magnetic force and restore health. Amateur mesmerists became a popular attraction at parties and in parlors a few proving skillful enough to attract paying customers. Some who awakened from a mesmeric trance claimed to have experienced visions of spirits from another dimension. So right there directly from the scientific-based work of Franz Anton Mesmer into the study of the paranormal, you get the term mesmerized, which we still use to this day to describe someone that's zoned out, that's focused in on one thing, that's hypnotized or that's in a uh, you know hallucinogenic or otherworldly state it'd be interesting to create something so popular in its day that it becomes part of the common language for everyday use and is used decades upon decades upon decades later and, you know, the people that are using it don't realize that it's attached to your name. But they still use that term to describe things. I'm not sure what the Hutchins method would consist of. But it most likely would involve a lot of pizza, Pepsi, heavy metal, horror movies, and professional wrestling. At the same time, the ideas of Emanuel Swedenborg an 18th century Swedish philosopher and mystic, also surged in popularity. Swedenborg described an afterlife consisting of three heavens, three hells, and interim destination, the world of spirits, where everyone went immediately upon dying, and which was more or less similar to what they were accustomed to on earth. 
Self-love drove one toward the varying degrees of hell. Love for others elevated one to the heavens. The Lord casts no one into hell, he wrote, but those who are there have deliberately cast themselves into it and keep themselves there. He claimed to have seen and talked with spirits on all of the plains. Seventy-five years later, the 19th century American seer Andrew Jackson Davis, who would become known as John the Baptist of modern spiritualism, combined these two ideologies, claiming that Swedenborg's spirit spoke to him during a series of mesmeric trances. Davis recorded the content of these messages, and in 1847 published them in a voluminous tome titled The Principles of Nature, Her Divine Revelations, and a Voice to Mankind. It is a truth, he asserted, predicting the rise of spiritualism, that spirits commune with one another while one is in the body and the other in the higher spheres. All the world will hail with delight the ushering in of that of that era when the interiors of men will be opened and the spiritual communication will be established. Davis believed his prediction materialized a year later, on the very day the Fox sisters first channeled spirits in their bedroom. About daylight this morning, he confided to his diary, a warm breathing passed over my face, and I heard a voice, tender and strong, saying, Brother, the good work has begun. Behold, a living demonstration is born. Upon hearing of the Rochester incident, Davis invited the Fox sisters to his home in New York City to witness their medium capabilities for himself. Joining his cause with the sisters' ghostly manifestations elevated his stature from obscure prophet to recognized leader of a mass movement, one that appealed to increasing numbers of Americans inclined to reject the gloomy Calvinistic doctrine of predestination and embrace the reform-minded optimism of the mid-19th century. Unlike their Christian contemporaries, Americans who adopted spiritualism believed they had a hand in their own salvation, and direct communication with those who had passed offered insight into the ultimate fate of their own souls. Maggie, Kate, and Leah Fox embarked on a professional tour to spread the word of the spirits, booking a suite, fittingly, at Barnum's Hotel on the corner of Broadway and Maiden Lane, an establishment owned by a cousin of the famed showman. An editorial in the Scientific American scoffed at their arrival, calling the girls the spiritual knockers from Rochester. They conducted their sessions in the hotel's parlor, inviting as many as 30 attendees to gather around a large table at the hours of 10 a.m., 5 p.m., and 8 p.m., taking an occasional private meeting in between. Admission was $1, and visitors included preeminent members of New York Society, Horace Greeley, the iconoclastic and influential editor of the New York Tribune, James Fenimore Cooper, editor and poet, William Cullen Bryant, an abolitionist, and William Lloyd Garrison, who witnessed a session in which the spirits rapped in time to a popular song and spelled out a message, Spiritualism will work miracles in the cause of reform.
Leah stayed in New York entertaining callers in a seance room, while Kate and Maggie took the show to the other cities, among them Cleveland, Cincinnati, Columbus, St. Louis, Washington, D.C., and Philadelphia, where one visitor, explorer Alicia Kent Kane, succumbed to Maggie's charms even as he deemed her a fraud, although he couldn't prove how the sounds were made. After a whole month's trial, I could make nothing of them, he confessed. Therefore, they are a great mystery. He courted Maggie, 13 years his junior, and encouraged her to give up her life of dreary sameness and suspected deceit. She acquiesced, retiring to attend school at Kane's behest and expense, and married him shortly before his untimely death in 1857. To honor his memory, she converted to Catholicism, as Kane, a Presbyterian, had always encouraged. He seemed to think the faith's ornate iconography and sense of mystery would appeal to her. In mourning, she began drinking heavily and vowed to keep her promise to Cain to wholly and forever abandon spiritualism. Kate, meanwhile, married a devout spiritualist and continued to develop her medium powers, translating spirit messages in astonishing and unprecedented ways communicating two messages simultaneously, writing one while speaking the other, transcribing messages in reverse script, utilizing blank cards upon which words seem to spontaneously appear. During sessions with a wealthy banker, Charles Livermore, she summoned both the man's deceased wife and the ghost Benjamin Franklin, who announced his identity by writing his name on a card. Her business boomed during and after the Civil War, as increasing numbers of the bereaved found solace in spiritualism. Prominent spiritualist Emma Harding wrote that the war added two million new believers to the movement, and by the 1880s there were an estimated eight million spiritualists in the United States and Europe. These new practitioners, seduced by the flamboyance of the Gilded Age, expected miracles like Kate's summoning of full-fledged apparitions at every seance. It was wearying both to the movement and to Kate herself, and she, too, began to drink. On October 21, 1888, the New York World published an interview with Maggie Fox in anticipation of her appearance that evening at the New York Academy of Music, where she would publicly denounce spiritualism. She was paid $1,500 for the exclusive. Her main motivation, however, was rage at her sister Leah and the other leading spiritualist who had publicly chastised Kate for her drinking and accused her of being unable to care for the two young children. Kate planned to be in the audience when Maggie gave her speech, lending her tactic support. My sister Katie and myself were very young children when this horrible deception began, Maggie said. At night, when we went to bed, we used to tie an apple on a string and move the string up and down, causing the apple to bump on the floor. Or we would drop the apple on the floor, making a strange noise every time it would rebound. The sisters graduated from apple dropping to manipulating their knuckles, joints, and toes to make rapping sounds. A great many people, when they hear the rapping, imagine at once that the spirits are touching them, she explained. 
It is a very common delusion. Some very wealthy people came to see me some years ago when I lived in 42nd Street, and I did some rappings for them. I made the spirit rap on the chair, and one of the ladies cry out, I feel the spirit tapping me on the shoulder. Of course, that was pure imagination. She offered a demonstration, removing her shoe and placing her right foot upon a wooden stool. The room fell silent and still, and was rewarded with a number of short little raps. There stood a black-robed, sharp-faced widow, the New York Herald reported, working her big toe and solemnly declaring that it was in this way she created the excitement that has driven so many persons to suicide or insanity. One moment it was ludicrous. The next, it was weird. Maggie insisted that her sister Leah knew that the wrappings were fake all along and greedily exploited her younger sisters. Before exiting the stage, she thanked God that she was able to expose spiritualism. The mainstream press called the incident a death blow to the movement, and spiritualists quickly took sides. Shortly after Maggie's confession, the spirit of Samuel B. Britton former publisher of the Spiritual Telegraph, appeared during a seance to offer a sympathetic opinion. Although Maggie was an authentic medium, he acknowledged, the band of spirits attending during the early part of her career had been usurped by other unseen intelligences who are not scrupulous in their dealings with humanity. Other living spiritualists charged that Maggie's change of heart was wholly mercenary. Since she had failed to make a living as a medium, she sought to profit by becoming one of spiritualism's fiercest critics. Whatever her motive, Maggie recanted her confession one year later, insisting that her spirit guides had beseeched her to do so. Her reversal prompted more disgust from devoted spiritualists, many of whom failed to recognize her at a subsequent debate at the Manhattan Liberal Club. There... Under the pseudonym Miss Spencer, Maggie revealed several tricks of the profession, including the way mediums wrote messages on Blake's slates by using their teeth or feet. She never reconciled with Sister Leah, who died in 1890. Kate died two years later while on a drinking spree. Maggie passed away eight months later in March 18, 1893. That year, spiritualists formed the National Spiritualist Association, which today is known as the Naturalist, National Spiritualist Association of Churches. In 1904, schoolchildren playing in the sisters' childhood home in Hydesville, known locally as the Spook House, discovered the majority of a skeleton between the earth and crumbling cedar walls. A doctor was consulted, who estimated that the bones were about 50 years old, giving credence to the sister's tale of spiritual message from a murdered peddler. But not everyone was convinced. The New York Times reported that the bones had created a stir amusingly disproportioned to any necessary significance of the discovery, and suggested that sisters had merely been clever enough to exploit a local mystery. Even if the bones were that of the murdered peddler, the Times concluded, there will, be, 
still remain that dreadful confession about the clicking joints, which reduces the whole case to a farce. Five years later, another doctor examined the skeleton and determined that it was made up of only a few ribs with odds and ends of bones, and among them a superabundance of some and a deficiency of others. Among them also were some chicken bones. He also reported a rumor that a man living near the spook house had planted the bones as a practical joke, but was too ashamed to come clean. So that's the story of the Fox sisters and the creation of spiritualism. What do you guys think? Was it just an elaborate, long-running hoax? Does the Fox sisters' confession of tying the apple to the string to make knocks and the cracking of their joints explain it all? Or were they truly mediums and one of the sisters mad at the others decided to besmirch the spiritualism movement because she was upset with her sister spreading rumors of her alcoholism. No one knows if spiritualism is real or not, but there are those out there that still believe that spiritualism is a way to communicate with the dead. One thing that can't be disputed is that poltergeist activity did not go away with the dismissal of the spiritualism movement. There were still plenty of cases to come. Alright, so now I'm going to discuss some of the more prominent poltergeist activity cases. Some of these are entertaining, some of these are controversial, some of these are terrifying, uh, but they're all interesting, and that's what we're going to discuss now. So first up is the Thornton Heath poltergeist. In the 1970s, in Thornton Heath, England, a family was tormented by poltergeist phenomena that started one August night when they were woken in the middle of the night by a blaring bedside radio that had somehow turned itself on, turned to a foreign language station. This was the beginning of a string of events that lasted nearly four years. A lampshade repeatedly was knocked to the floor by unaided hands. During the Christmas season of 1972, an ornament was hurled across the room, smashing into the husband's forehead. As he flopped into an armchair, reports Haunted Croydon, the Christmas tree began to shake violently. Come to the new year and there were footsteps in the bedroom when there was no one there, and one night the couple's son awoke to find a man in old-fashioned dress staring threateningly at him. The family's fear grew when, as they entertained friends one night, there was a loud knocking at the front door. The living room door was then flung open and all the house's lights came on. Having the house blessed failed to rid the house of phenomenon. Objects flew through the air, loud noises were heard, and the family would sometimes hear a noise which suggested some large piece of furniture had crashed to the floor. 
When they went to investigate, nothing would be disturbed. A median who was consulted told the family that the house was haunted by a farmer of the name Chatterton, who considered the family trespassers on his property. An investigation bore out the fact that Chatterton had indeed lived in the house in the mid-18th century. Chatterton's wife now joined in causing mayhem, and often the tenant's wife would be followed up the stairs at night by an elderly gray-haired woman wearing a pinafore and with her hair tied back in a bun. If looked at, she would disappear back into the shadows. The family even reported seeing the farmer appear on their television screens wearing a black jacket with wide pointed lapels, a high-necked shirt, and a black cravat. After the family moved out of the house, the poltergeist activity ceased, and none have been reported by subsequent residents. The Infield Poltergeist Case Another English ghost, this one in Enfield, North London, made headlines in 1977. It's also the basis for, for horror movie The Conjuring 2. If you guys enjoy The Conjuring series, The Conjuring 2 is loosely based on the events that occurred at the Enfield house. The strange activity seemed to center around the daughter of Peggy Harper, a divorcee in her mid-40s. Again, it started on an August night. Late at night, an urban ghost story relates. Janet, aged 11, and her brother Pete, aged 10, complained that their beds were jolting up and down and going all funny. As soon as Miss Harper got to the room, the movements had stopped. As far as she was concerned, her kids were making it all up. But things got progressively more bizarre from there. Shuffling noises and knocks on the wall were followed by a heavy chest of drawers sliding by itself across the floor. Miss Harper promptly got her children out of the house and sought the assistance of a neighbor. The neighbors searched the house and garden but found no one. Soon they also heard knocks on the walls which continued at spaced out intervals. At 11 p.m. they called the police who heard the knocks one officer even saw a chair inexplicably move across the floor and later signed a written statement to confirm the events. Several people were witness to the events that occurred in the following days. Lego bricks and marbles were thrown around the house and were often hot to the touch. In September of that year, Maurice Gross of the Society for Physical Research came to investigate. Gross claims that he experienced the strange happenings. First, a marble was thrown at him from an unseen hand. He saw doors open and close by themselves and claimed to feel a sudden breeze that seemed to move up from his feet to his head. Gross was later joined in the investigation by writer Guy Lyon Playfair, and together they studied the case for two years. The knocking on the walls and floors became an almost nightly occurrence. Furniture slid across the floor and was thrown down the stairs. Drawers were wrenched out of dressing tables. Toys and other objects would fly across the room. Bedclothes would be pulled off. Water was found in mysterious puddles on the floors. 
and there were outbreaks of fire followed by their inexplicable extinguishing. The case became decidedly unnerving when the spirits revealed themselves through Janet. Speaking in a deep, grovelly voice, the spirit announced that his name was Bill, and he had died in the house, a fact that has been verified. The voices and the phenomenon have been recorded on tape and film, and Playfair has written a book about the case called This House is Haunted. Despite the documentation, however, much controversy surrounds the case. Skeptics claim that the case is nothing more than the work of a very clever and mischievous girl, Janet. The poltergeist activity always stopped when she was watched closely, and when she was taken to a hospital for several days to be tested for physical or mental abnormality, the phenomena ceased in the house. Some researchers believe that Janet taught herself to speak in the strange male voice and that the photos of her levitating in her bedroom merely caught her jumping off the bed. Was this poltergeist case just the result of an attention-seeking 11-year-old? Well, let's take a little bit of a deeper dive on specifically the infield poltergeist and see what you guys decide. The infield poltergeist was a claim of supernatural activity at 284 Green Street, a council house in Brimsdown, Enfield, London, England, between 1977 and 1979, involving two sisters aged 11 and 13. Some members of the Society for Physical Research, such as inventor Maurice Gross and writer Guy Lyon Playfair, believe the haunting to be genuine, while others, such as Anita Gregory and John Bailoff, were unconvinced and found evidence the girls had fake incident for be the benefit of journalists. Members of the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry, including stage magicians such as Milbourne Christopher and Joe Nickel, criticized paranormal investigators for being credulous while also identifying features of the case as being indicative of a hoax. The story attracted press coverage in British newspapers and has been mentioned in books featured in television documentaries, and dramatized in a horror film. In August 1977, single parent Peggy Hodgson called police to her rented home in Enfield, claiming she had witnessed furniture moving and that two of her four children said that knocking sounds were heard on the walls. The children included Margaret, age 13, and Janet, age 11. A police constable said that she saw a chair wobble and slide, but could not determine the cause of movement. Later claims included disembodied voices, loud noises, thrown toys, overturned chairs, and children levitating. Over a period of 18 months, more than 30 people, including the neighbors, psychic researchers, and journalists, said they variously saw heavy furniture moving on its own accord, objects being thrown across a room, and the daughters seeming to levitate several feet off the ground. Many also heard and recorded knocking noises and a gruff voice. The story was covered in the Daily Mail and Daily Mirror until the reports came to an end in 1979. 
The Society for Physical Research members Maurice Gross and Guy Lyon Playfair reported curious whistling and barking noises coming from Janet's general direction. Although Playfair maintained the haunting was general and wrote it later in his book, This House is Haunted, the true story of a poltergeist, that an entity was to blame for the infilled disturbances. He often doubted the children's veracity and wondered if they were playing tricks and exaggerating. Still, Gross and Playfair believed that even though some of the alleged poltergeist activity was faked by the girls, other incidents were genuine. Other paranormal investigators who studied the case include American demonologists Ed and Lorraine Warren. The Warrens visited the infield house in 1978 and were convinced that the events had a supernatural explanation. Janet was detected in trickery. A video camera came in the room next door, caught her bending spoons and attempting to bend an iron bar. Gross had observed Janet banging a broom handle on the ceiling and hiding his tape recorder. According to Playfair, one of Janet's voices she called Bill displayed a habit of suddenly changing the topic. It was a habit Janet also had. When Janet and Margaret admitted pranking to journalists, Gross and Playfair compelled the girls to retract their confession. They were mocked by other researchers for being so easily duped. The physical researcher Renee Haynes had noted that doubts were raised about the alleged poltergeist voice at the Second International Society for Physical Research Conference at Cambridge in 1978, where video cassettes from the case were examined. The SPR investigator Anita Gregory stated that the infield case had been overrated, characterizing several episodes of the girls' behavior as suspicious, and speculated that the girls had staged some incidents for the benefit of journalists seeking a sensational story. John Beloff, a former president of the SPR, investigated and suggested Janet was practicing ventriloquism. Both Beloff and Gregory came to the conclusion that Janet and Margaret were playing tricks on the investigators. American magician Milborn Christopher briefly investigated, failed to observe anything that he could be called paranormal, and was dismayed by what he felt was suspicious activity on the part of Janet. Christopher would later conclude that the poltergeist was nothing more than the antics of a little girl who wanted to cause trouble and who was very, very clever. Ventriloquist Ray Allen visited the house and concluded that Janet's male voices were simply vocal tricks. Skeptic Joe Nickel examined the findings of paranormal investigators and criticized them for being overly credulous. When a supposedly disembodied demonic voice was heard, Playfair noted that, as always, Janet's lips hardly seemed to be moving. He states that a remote-controlled still camera, the photographer, was not present in the room with the girls, time to take a picture every 15 seconds, was shown by the investigator Melvin Harris to reveal pranking by the girls. He argues that a photo allegedly depicting Janet levitating actually shows her bouncing off the bed as if it were a trampoline. Harris called the photos examples of common gymnastics and said it's worth remembering that Janet was a school sports champion. 
Nickel asserted that a tape recorder malfunction that Gross attributed to supernatural activity and SPR President David Fontana described as an occurrence which appeared to defy the laws of mechanics was peculiar threading jam capable of occurring with older model reel-to-reel -reel tape recorders. He said that Ed Warren was notorious for exaggerating and even making up incidences in such cases, often transforming a haunting case into one of demonic possession. In 2015, Deborah Hyde commented that there was no solid evidence for the infield poltergeist. The first thing to note is that the occurrences didn't happen under controlled circumstances. People frequently see what they expect to see, their senses being organized and shaped by their prior experiences and beliefs. Skeptics have argued that alleged poltergeist voice that originated from Janet was produced by false vocal cords above the larynx and had the phraseology and vocabulary of a child. In a television interview for BBC Scotland, Janet was observed to gain attention by waving her hand and then putting her hand in front of her mouth while a claimed disembodied voice was heard. During the interview, both girls were asked the question, How does it feel to be haunted by a poltergeist? Janet replied, It's not haunted. And Margaret, in a hushed tone, interrupted, Shut up! These factors have been regarded by skeptics as evidence against the case. As a magician experienced in the dynamics of trickery, Nickel examined Playfair's account as well as contemporary press clippings. He noted that the supposed poltergeist tended to act only when it was not being watched and concluded that the incidents were best explained as children's pranks. In an interview with the Daily Mail, the adult Janet admitted that she and her sister had faked 2% of the phenomena. This prompted Nickel to comment in another publication, the evidence suggests that this figure is closer to 100%. Although Gross made tape recordings of Janet and believed no trickery was involved, the magician Bob Cootie said, He made some of the recordings available to me and, having listened to them very carefully, I came to the conclusion that there was nothing in what I heard that was beyond the capabilities of an imaginative teenager. An article by psychological professor Chris French in 2016 described five reasons why he believed the case to be a hoax. The Enfield case has been featured in popular culture over and over again. In the 1992, the BBC aired a mockumentary titled Ghost Watch, written by Stephen Volk, and based on the Enfield poltergeist. In March 2007, Channel 4 aired a documentary about the Enfield poltergeist, titled Interview with the Poltergeist. The Enfield poltergeist has been featured in episodes of ITV series Strange But True and Extreme Ghost Stories. The Enfield Poltergeist was the subject of the 2015 Sky Living television series, The Enfield Haunting, which was broadcast from the 4th of May to the 17th in 2015. The 2016 film The Conjuring 2 is based on Ed and, Lorraine's Warren, Ed and Lorraine Warren's investigation of the case. And in 2018, the BBC Radio 4 program The Reunion revisited the case with interviews with people who were involved. The Danny Poltergeist Case In 1998, 
Jen Fishman, a reporter for the Savannah Morning News, began a series of articles about a possibly haunted antique bed in the home of Al Cobb of Savannah, Georgia. Cobb bought the vintage late 1800s bed at an auction as a Christmas present for his 14-year-old son Jason, a purchase he later regretted. Three nights later, Fishman reported, Jason told his parents he felt as if he had someone planted elbows on his pillow and was watching him and breathing cold air down the back of his neck. He felt sick. The next night he noticed the photo of his deceased grandparents on his wicker nightstand flipped down, so he righted it. The next day the photo was facing down again. Later that morning, after leaving his room for breakfast, he returned and found in the middle of his bed two beanie babies, the zebra and the tiger, next to a conch shell, a dinosaur made of shells and plaster toucan bird. That got his parents and his twin brother, Lee's, attention. Trying to make sense of the irrational, Al called out, Do we have a Casper here? Tell me your name and how old you are. Then he left some lined composition paper and crayons with his family walked out of the room. In 15 minutes they returned to found written vertically in large block childlike letters, Danny, 7. With his family out of the house, Al Cobb decided to continue trying to communicate with the spirit of Danny. With the same kind of notes, Danny indicated that his mother had died in that bed in 1899 and that he wanted to stay with the bed. He also made it clear that he didn't want anyone else sleeping in it. The same day they found a note reading, No one sleep in bed. Jason, who had moved out of the room, decided to stretch out and pretend to take a nap. That, says Al, was a mistake. I doubled back in the room to pick up my clothes, remembers Jason, when this terracotta head that had been hanging on the wall came flying through the room, just missing me before it smashed on the closed door. No one really knows, Fishman writes in her second installment, who or what is leaving the copious notes, moving the furniture, opening the kitchen drawers, setting the dining room table, flipping over the chairs, lighting the candles, arranging the posters to spell out a poster's name, Jill then hanging the finished product on the bedroom wall. Jason also spoke of other spirits. Uncle Sam, who had come to reclaim his daughter, he said was buried under the house. Gracie, a young girl whose sculpture sits in a Bonaventure cemetery, and Jill, a young woman who left a number of handwritten messages among them one inviting the Cobbs to a party in their living room. Parapsychologist Andrew Nichols, head of the Florida Society of the Parapsychological Research, investigated the case. What happened at the Cobbs, he told Fishman, more specifically to Jason, would have happened without Danny or the bed. It was the electromagnetic energy of the wall that Jason started sleeping next to when they moved the bed there that charged a psychic ability the boy already had. The Sally House 
the Sally House is the granddaddy of them all for poltergeist activity and creepy ass stories. We're going to get into it here in a little bit, but if you're listening to this, go and Google the Sally House, check it out. Tons of awesome stories, tons of evidence coming out of there, tons of different people living in the house having different stories. And if you don't check out anything else, check out the Astonishing Legends podcast with Forrest Burgess and Scott Philbrook. They actually did a paranormal investigation in the home and got an incredible EVP from their experiences there. And they played it on their show, and it's I believe it's also available on YouTube to listen to. Uh, it's pretty intense, and it will make you second-guess being a skeptic on poltergeist activity. With that being said, if you love feeling scared... You may already know about the Sally House Haunting. It is the most haunted house in America after all. It may not look like it, being a little white house that lies near the Missouri River in Atchison, Kansas, United States. The house, though, is known for everything spooky from apparitions to random fires reported by paranormal investigators and random folks like you and me. This house, clearly, is a whole new level of scary. And like most scary stories, the story of this haunted house begins with a little girl. As I'm sure you've guessed, the young girl's name was Sally. And now Sally's become known as the Heartland Ghost. The house was built in the 19th century, somewhere between 1867 and 1871, and belonged to the Finney family for more than a century. The husband was a doctor, Dr. Charles Finney. He used the front as an open office space and examination room for patients. The living spaces for himself and his wife and baby were upstairs. One day, a mother rushed her young, collapsed daughter into the house. The little girl was suffering from abdominal pains. Dr. Finney diagnosed the problem as appendicitis and worried that her appendix would burst shortly. He said that Sally needed surgery, and the mother agreed. However, Dr. Finney began surgery on Sally just before her anesthesia fully sedated her. She did not make it through the operation. The little girl died on the operating table, screaming of pain. The Finney family continued to live in the house for the next century or so. The home's next tenant was a single woman for about 40 years before the next family moved in. The house was rented to a young family, the Pickmans, in 1993 of Tony and Deborah Pickman. They were expecting their first son, who they named Taylor. To their dismay, paranormal activity began almost as soon as they moved into their new home. On October 31, 1993, Tony came home from work and went to the kitchen for a drink. He noticed the little girl staring at him in the kitchen, and as soon as he did, he dropped his glass and ran upstairs.
he told Deborah, I saw her, I saw her. Further, their dog started to growl at nothing. Then, it really began. They often heard noises in the upstairs nursery. Fires broke out in the house. Toys would rearrange themselves. And, to top it all off, physical attacks began on Tony Pickman, including scratches and burns all over his body. But Deborah and the baby were never harmed. Allegedly, the pattern of only men being harmed was commonly known as a symptom of the house. However, there's not much evidence that men were harmed either. Some say that the attacks on Tony Pickman and men specifically were Sally's way to seek revenge on the man that hurt her, Dr. Finney. The Pickman family tried to make peace with Sally. They bought her gifts and toys, hoping to stop the attacks, yet they continued. Tony and Deborah Pickman moved out two years in the house. They returned about ten years later to do some investigating with psychic investigators. Many paranormal activity hunters have visited the Sally House to see for themselves and to diagnose the goings-on. The first few return visits were uneventful. The next began with Tony thrown backwards into a door and pinned against it unable to move by an unseen force. The other paranormal activity that has been observed at the house includes but is not limited to cold spots, objects moving and levitating, lights turning on and off, spontaneous fires, picture frames turned upside down, toys rearranging themselves. Deborah Pickman wrote their first-hand account of Sally's hauntings, The Sally House Haunting, A True Story. Other entities have also been identified in the house aside from Sally, and many belong to the Finney family. There is also a former Civil War soldier, an adult prankster, and a young boy named Frank, who died a year after Sally to a botched suicide attempt from his mother. She survived. He did not. The summation of all the physics identified the negative entity attacking the house and strong energies within it is attached to the land and is older than the house itself. It is housed, of course, in the scariest part of a scary place, the back of the basement. Whether or not you believe paranormal investigations, it is pretty eerie, right? Due to the aggressive amount of activity in the Sally House, it's constantly featured on TV. Show sightings include Unexplained Mysteries, The Discovery and Biography Channels, LiveSciFi.tv, Heartland Ghost, a TV film by Paranaut, and the Travel Channel's Most Haunted Town. Atchison is about an hour from Kansas City, Missouri, so you can imagine just how many ghost seekers make the trek here to go on some serious ghost adventures. The following is a blog excerpt from Deborah Pickman herself called Strange Nuances about the Sally House story from the time that they lived there. Now this is a small excerpt, but it is long in length. 
but it is taken straight from the Sally House website, and it's written by Deborah Pickman herself. Excitedly, we moved into the house December 31st, 1992, having no idea that there was anything strange or odd about it. For a few weeks while we unpacked and set up house things were quiet, but perhaps only because in doing so we lived with much disorder. Beginning mid-January, small things, easily explained away, occurred, and I often wonder how much activity went unnoticed. Once we realized what was going on in the house, I had to think back and write down many of the activities we had found, somewhat strange at the time, but didn't pay much mind to. Many of the happenings never took place again. However, some did. The first strange thing we experienced was that our normally quiet and friendly dog barked fiercely at the threshold of the nursery room. This subsided after about a week to ten days. Our cats seemingly followed with their eyes, something that often flew over our heads. We could never figure out what they found so captivating, because we could never see what their eyes were frantically chasing. Much of the activity occurred sporadically over a period of weeks, however. Some of it was witnessed several times within any given day. This activity included many electrically-based moments. Often we would hear the timer on our microwave or the stove sound as if it had been set and just reached the end of its cycle. One situation I often think back on is comical. We had installed a ceiling fan in the living room complete with a set of lights. There were many evenings where Tony and I would sit in the living room in the evening and watch TV. Often enough, and having so many windows in the house, we simply opened windows and turned on the fan to circulate a cooling breeze through the house. As we sat there, the lights would dim quite low. This happened almost every night for a while. The fact that the wall switch was directly across the room from us when this happened and had become a concern, but even more so was the fact that there was no dimmer switch hooked up for the light. We had the light and the electrical checked out by an electrician to rule out bad wiring and no problem was found. The light continued to dim. What was even more intriguing was that there were no other lights, nor the TV or stereo changed at all. Nothing on the same electrical circuit fluctuated or seemed affected by whatever was causing the light on the fan to dim. Tony made the off-cuff comment, huh, We must have a ghost. We had no idea how right he was. I detected the cold spots mostly in the area of the stairs or the front door, often as I was going up the stairs and on a daily basis. This is one activity that remained throughout the entire time we lived in the house. We occasionally had problems with our portable phone. There were a few instances when I had not been able to use it while standing in the nursery. However, upon exiting into the hall, the party that I was speaking to returned. There was other activity that took place in the nursery. While vacuuming, the wind-up musical above the crib began to turn and play music on its own. Electronic musical toys would often take on a life of their own and emit sounds, hums, and even distant-sounding voices. 
I look back and wish I would have known about EVP back then. For those of you listening, EVP is electronic voice phenomenon. And it's a favorite thing to record by paranormal investigators. There were also other disconnection type occurrences with the phone that happened elsewhere in the house. And so frequently within one conversation that I had to cut my conversation short. This happened in good weather and bad on local and long distance calls. The battery was fully charged and at one point a new battery was installed. And when the occurrence continued, it gave us verification that the problem was not a faulty battery. Since his arrival, our newborn son had been waking up every hour on the hour every night for more than two weeks. When my sister Karen offered to fly from New York to help, we accepted and anxiously waited for her arrival the next day. My sister Karen is a lifesaver. She had graciously taken over the nighttime feedings and care of the three-week-old Taylor for several nights and allowed us to catch up on some desperately needed sleep. Karen was a godsend for five days, and she will never forget her last night in Kansas. It was the night that marked the infamous event that changed our lives forever. It was that very evening that we were pushed over the edge of disbelief and through the door of terror. The following events are true and were recorded by myself in my diary shortly after they occurred. So what shall we do today, I asked. Shall we watch another rented movie? Rented movies and a box of bite-sized shredded wheat had been the extent of our nightly entertainment since Karen's arrival. For most of that day we had been visiting at my in-laws house and during our stay some of Tony's other relatives had popped in and out. As we were getting ready to return home Tony's sister-in-law Jeannie came by. She said she had to tell us something. She seemed very uneasy and told us there was something she felt guilty about. Several weeks previous she'd mentioned to us that she had a high chair we could have. She admitted that she stopped by our house earlier that day to drop it off, and even though we were not there, she had still wanted to see if the nursery had been finished yet. She'd let herself in and went upstairs to take a peek. Tony and I had no problem with her doing this, but after having done so, she didn't feel right about it. In order to ease her guilty conscience, she had searched us out to tell us what she had done. I assured her it was no big deal and in the back of my mind I couldn't help but wonder why she was still so nervous and upset about it. Twenty minutes later Tony, Karen, Taylor and I left for home which was only five minutes away. After being at the house about half an hour somewhere around 10 p.m. Tony went upstairs to use the bathroom. When he came back down, he found me in the kitchen and asked why I had put all of Taylor's stuffed animals on the nursery floor. So, being very puzzled by the question, I responded with a puzzling grimace. What? I asked. Again, he told me that all of these stuffed animals were sitting on the floor in the middle of the nursery. Perplexed, my eyes widened as if to say, what do you mean? How did they get there? 
Karen had walked in time to hear Tony's comment. All three of us promptly marched upstairs to take a look. It's important to note that several days before Karen had arrived, I had meticulously put a medium, scruffy-looking teddy bear on a small wicker chair just inside the nursery room door, two small ones on a shelf above the baby's crib, a rather large bear and several small stuffed animals inside the crib, a few ones on top of the dresser, and another large bear on the far side of the room. I had also left a small musical cat on the baby's changing table. As we tucked sleeping Taylor in his carrier downstairs in the living room, I tried to visualize as all three of us went upstairs to take a look at what Tony described about the bears on the floor, exactly how I decorated the room. Just that morning, I had admired how adorable and welcoming the toys and stuffed animals looked. We got to the nursery. Exactly as Tony described, not that I had doubted him, all the stuffed animals had been placed on the floor in the middle of the room. In addition, they had been neatly organized into a circle, their backs snuggled up against each other, facing forward. As I stared at this as a play, I got a really weird chill down my back. Although several things began to run through our heads, we were sure someone had played a trick on us. Since we rarely locked the front door, Tony's brother, Tom, or anyone else for that matter, could have gotten in the house and set this up. Perhaps when Jeannie was in the house checking out the nursery while we were gone, she had moved them there. But why would she have done that? And if she had wanted to pull off a prank or surprise, why would she have gone to the effort of to find us and tell us what she'd been at the house for in the first place? A prank by Jeannie was unlikely, and definitely not in her nature. We thought about the wind and even the cats knocking the bears to the floor, but all the windows were shut, and these theories would not explain how the animals ended up so meticulously positioned on the floor. The three of us stood there quietly going through theories, smirking at each other in disbelief, knowing there had to be a logical explanation. We waited, wanting one of us to say, Okay, I did it, but no one did. Still very puzzled and realizing no one was going to fess up, we checked for magnets, transparent strings, and fishing lines attached to stuffed animals. None were found. After exhausting our list of signs of typical tricks, we decided to call Jeannie. After all, she had been the last person in the house. Maybe, just maybe, she did prank us. As I dialed her number, I wondered if perhaps the toys hadn't already been on the floor when she'd come into the nursery. She probably would have thought we had put them there and didn't think to mention the strangeness of it to us. While listening to the phone ring, I thought about something else. I knew Jeannie was inquisitive, no matter what the subject was. She always had to know why, where, when. I was positive that if the stuffed animals had been on the floor of the nursery when she'd looked into the room, she surely would have asked me why we had put them there. So before even talking to her, I had a feeling she'd say she didn't ask th about them because they weren't there. A moment later, I heard Jeannie's voice on the other end of the line. Hi Jeannie, it's Deborah. 
Thanks for the high chair. Since I had a, some really odd questions to ask her and wasn't quite sure how I was going to go about it, doing so without startling her or getting her curious nature started, I began with a bit of small talk first. After running out of idle conversation and clueless on how to inconspicuously ask someone bizarre questions, I just came out right out and asked, Hey Jeannie, I've got an odd question for you. Her response was an enthusiastic, yeah? My nerves settled enough to go on. When you were here today, did you notice anything weird in the nursery? No, she replied. Everything seemed to be in perfect order. For a few minutes, she went on about Tony's and my artistic talents at creating such a wonderful nursery. Just about the time I thought the conversation had gone not well enough, she wouldn't quiz me on why I'd asked such a weird question. Her curiosity had been piqued. She must have had a delayed reaction. Why'd you ask about anything weird in the nursery? There it was. I had to tell her what and how we found the stuffed animals in the nursery. Before explaining our situation, I decided to rephrase my original question. I wanted to be sure the answer she gave was in no way influenced by me. You didn't by any chance move any of the stuffed animals to the floor of the nursery, did you? No, I didn't touch a thing. Why? Is something wrong? A bit shy at first about blurting out what we'd found, I hesitantly told her, and before I could finish, she said very shocked and distressed, Oh my God. I heard her calling out to her husband. I wasn't going to say anything, she said to me, and my heart skipped a beat. She called out to her husband again, repeating to him what I had just told her. She finally got her focus back to our phone conversation and explained how she'd felt odd, as though something was really wrong when she'd come into the house. She said that when she'd gone upstairs, she got a real strange, cold feeling and she felt strongly that something just wasn't right. After she'd gone into the nursery, she described an overwhelming, unsettling feeling. She said the strange, uneasy feeling just wouldn't let go of her and made her leave the house very quickly. She drove to Mom and Dad's to stop by and tell us about it. During the drive over, however, her nerves had settled down. Mom and Dad's house had been filled with a lot of relatives when she'd arrived. She decided it probably wasn't a good time to tell us of her experience, except the fact she'd left the high chair in the house for us. I relayed the conversation to Tony and Karen, who were still in the nursery with me while I was on the phone. We all came to the same conclusion. Jeannie hadn't moved the toys. There were only two explanations left. First, someone had been in the house between the time Jeannie had left and the time we came back from my in-laws no more than 20 minutes. Second, and altogether unsettling, was the idea that we had a ghost. I remembered that I had always wanted a ghost of my own, but because I had never been confronted with the reality, I wasn't quite sure how to handle it. My thoughts kept going back and forth with, Wow, this is neat. This is great. I can't believe it. This is sort of scary. This is really weird. 
this is really happening. I wondered what we were supposed to do now. What kind of spirit was this? What will it do? What does it want? On one hand, I thought about the many possibilities of having a ghost in the house would bring. However, I kept a firm grip on denial, such as the thought, this only happens to other people. I think this was just a natural reaction and my only form of defense against something I was, for the most part, unfamiliar with. The three of us stood in the nursery considering a plausible alternate explanation for what had happened. We decided immediately that someone else must have come into the house while we were gone and set the toys on the floor as we had found them. It occurred to us that the most likely trickster was Greg, one of Tony's brothers. He and Tony had always played pranks on each other. Having accepted this explanation for the strange occurrence, we put the stuffed animals back in their respective places, and Tony turned out the light. The three of us stood silently in the hallway, looking back into the nursery, trying one last time to assure ourselves something odd was not going on. I descended the stairs and was quickly followed by Tony and Karen. Upon reaching the bottom of the stairs, Karen, for some unknown reason, glanced back up. She said, alarmed, The light in the nursery is back on. She turned to Tony and said, I thought you turned out the light. I did, he told her. With eyebrows raised, we all stared up the stairs at the light emanating from the nursery. Although we had all been within a few feet of each other as we came downstairs, and there had been no way for one of us to have returned to the nursery to turn the light back on, we each took turns looking at each other as if wanting and waiting for one of us to say, Ha ha, gotcha. But no one did. We had all just come down the stairs, trying desperately to see a little humor in the strange situation, but now, it was downright scary. Once again, after checking the baby was fine, we went back upstairs, quietly sneaking along as if we might catch someone in the act of doing something. As a side note, we remained within a few feet of each other, or at least within visual range of each other, for the rest of the night. We slowly emerged at the top of the stairs, which enabled all three of us to see into the nursery. No one of us dared to go in. As we stood there, staring motionless into the room, we gaped at the one scruffy teddy bear laying flat on his back in the middle of the floor. The last time we left the room, I was the one who had set the bear back on its wicker chair, which was just inside the nursery, and to the left of the doorway. We stood gaping a moment longer as a chilling feeling went through us. Trying desperately to hold on to our composure, we once more checked the bear for any type of hidden strings or magnets. Again, we came up with nothing. And that's just a small excerpt from her blog on the Sally House website. Um, it definitely escalates from that point 
to the point where Tony Pickman would eventually be physically attacked by what he claimed to be the entity in the house. There's pictures online of his scratches and injuries that he received. And the TV show Sightings from back in the day even did a long-form episode special on the Pickman's experiences in the Sally House. Now, I'm sure some of you internet sleuths out there can track that down somewhere on YouTube or Google. And if you can, definitely check it out. It's worth seeing. Um, it's a very interesting case. There's still strange activity going on in the Sally House to this day. Even though no one currently lives there as a permanent resident. Um, a lot of ghost hunting and paranormal investigating teams go there to seek out what they can find. A lot of evidence has been documented. There's a lot of EVPs, a lot of video, a lot of strange occurrences, and a lot of eyewitness testimony. So definitely the Sally House remains the peak of poltergeist activity. As I mentioned in the intro of the episode, there's a distinct difference between ghosts and specifically poltergeists. Determining the difference between poltergeist activity and ghosts or haunting activity can be difficult. While ghost and haunting activity is a result of spirit energy, poltergeist activity, also known as recurrent spontaneous psychokinesis, or RSPK, is the result of physical energy generated usually unconsciously by a person referred to as an agent. But how do you know there might be poltergeist activity in your home? Most often you'll know if you have it because it is out of ordinary and pretty obvious. Sounds, movements, and odors of unknown origin. Below are seven of the most common types of poltergeist activity. Let's be clear, however, because you experience or think you experience one or more of these activities listed below does not mean that there definitely is poltergeist activity. There could be more mundane, everyday causes for the activity. For example, smells of unknown origin could be wafting in from an open window, lightnings flickering on and off could be faulty wiring. You should always seek logical explanations before jumping to conclusion that it is a poltergeist activity. True poltergeist activity, although it is a well-documented phenomenon with many real cases, is relatively rare. A professional investigator might be able to help you to determine the cause of what you are experiencing. The seven signs of poltergeist activity are 1. Disappearing objects. You put your set of keys or your cell phone down in the place you always put it. You turn around a minute later and it's gone. You and your family search high and low for it, but it cannot be found. Later, sometimes days later or longer, the object mysteriously reappears in the very place you always put it. Or, more bizarrely, you later find it in a ridiculous place like a high on a bookshelf 
in a shoebox in the closet or some other spot where you'd never put it in a million years. This is known as the disappearing object phenomenon. 2. Objects levitating or thrown. You're sitting there watching TV, totally engrossed in a dramatic movie, when suddenly the bowl of popcorn you've been munching from rises from the coffee table, floats through the air a few feet away, then drops to the floor. Or, you're having a loud argument with your teenage daughter, and she storms out of the room. Books and knickknacks come hurtling off the bookcase, as if reacting to the young girl's anger. The movement of physical objects like this can be quite dramatic, and can be as slight as a box of Tic Tacs sliding a few inches across a tabletop, or as amazing as a heavy refrigerator levitating off the kitchen floor. 3. Scents and Odors No one in your house smokes, yet on occasion the distinct smell of cigarettes or cigar smoke can be detected in the bathroom. Or, as you're dressing for bed, suddenly the overpowering scent of lilacs fills the room. As stated above, all kinds of smells can enter your house from the outside, even from a passing car. So such scents might not necessarily mean poltergeist. Such scents and odors can also be a sign of ghost activity, as they might be associated with a spirit or with a residual haunting. 4. Electrical Interference Johnny is having a tough time in school, and sometimes when he enters the living room with that scowl on his face, the overhead light and lamps flicker. Or it's 3 o'clock in the morning and you're shocked out of sleep by the stereo and the din turning on, full blast and it doesn't have a remote control that could have set it off accidentally either from inside or outside the house number five power from nowhere that antique clock on the fireplace mantle hasn't worked in years but it's a family heirloom and you like how it looks there so you've kept it quite suddenly it begins to chime and the second hand resumes moving even though the clock hasn't been working or wound in 10 years. Maybe it's 9.15 p.m. and the little kids are sound asleep in bed when suddenly Billy's little choo-choo train begins to chug across the living room floor. You think that's odd, but you switch it off and put it back down. A few minutes later, the little train starts up again. Thinking there's something wrong with the switch, you open the battery compartment to remove the batteries but there are no batteries in it. Number six, knocks, rappings, footsteps, and other noises. You're in your office trying to balance the checkbook, but you find it hard to concentrate when your husband is in the other room banging on the wall for some reason. You go to investigate, but then remember your husband is out bowling. He isn't even home. No one else is. So where's that knocking coming from? Or the family is at the kitchen table deep into a heated game of Monopoly. Suddenly, all the chatter stops when everyone's attention is drawn to the sound of footsteps coming up the basement stairs. Dad checks it out, but of course there is no one there. Number 7. Physical Attacks 12-year-old Alyssa can't stand how her parents are always fighting. The constant yelling and screaming are driving her crazy. She sits on the floor in the corner of her room, crying with her face in her hands. She winces from a sudden pain in her back. 
When she checks it in a mirror, she finds fresh scratches. Or the poltergeist activity, from unexplained bangs to the flying coffee pots, has been escalating at the Furman household, and young Becky seems to be the center of it all. It got at its worst when visiting Uncle Donald received sharp slaps across the face, seemingly from an unseen hand. Physical attacks such as these have been documented in such cases as the Bell Witch case and the Amherst Poltergeist, but they are exceedingly rare and occur only in the most severe cases. How do you recognize a poltergeist? An experienced paranormal investigator or parapsychologist might be able to help you determine if what is taking place in your home is poltergeist activity or a haunting which can sometimes exhibit similar effects, or whether there is a logical, non-paranormal explanation. In the case of a poltergeist, the investigator will look for other factors. Since poltergeist activity is physic effect rather than a spirit-based one, the investigator should try to determine who the agent is, the person who is generating the telekinetic activity. Various kinds of stresses can be the cause of this activity, including emotional, physical, psychological, or even hormonal stresses, and so the investigator should try to examine the personal and family dynamics and very well might need to seek the help of therapists or counselors. However, most cases of poltergeist activity are short-lived, lasting only days or a few weeks. It is rare indeed that they stretch out for months or more most of the time, they just fade away on their own. Now that's the list of seven types of poltergeist activity. And those are laid out by Stephen Wagner. And Stephen Wagner posits the theory that poltergeist activity may not actually be spirits, but may be physic energy. Energy that often teenage kids or young kids put out into the world when they're feeling distressed, stressed, sad, depressed, things of that nature, and it manifests into objects physically moving and all the seven steps that you hear there in the list. Is that what you guys think poltergeist activity is? Or do you think poltergeist activity is caused by entities. Let me know what you guys think. I look forward to hearing from you. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm excited to bring this next interview to you. I spent many a late night and wee hour of the morning working side by side with this guy, sweating it out on the old Toys R Us truck crew. We'd be back in the warehouse with metal clanging, heads banging with some heavy metal on, 
working out the boxes, stacking up U-boats, unloading the truck, loading in bikes, doing all that good stuff. This guy's a good friend, a great worker, one of the guys that you love working with that makes you happy to come to work every day because working with him is super easy. And he's a super cool cat and easy to get along with. So stick around for this interview. Without further ado, this is my interview with Chris Sisko. All right, ladies and gentlemen, as broadcast earlier on in the episode, I have a special guest for you all today. Uh, my guest is on the line with me now. So, sir, go ahead and introduce yourself to the lovely listening audience. Hey, what's up, everybody? Uh, this is uh, Chris here uh, with James, old co-workers. So, kind of reuniting over the phone, doing this interview thing. That's right, man. Old true crew buddy right there. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> All right, Chris, man. Thanks for coming into the Monsters Lair with me today, bro. Um, this episode that you're going to be featured in is an episode on poltergeist activity. Um, you had mentioned to me when we first started talking about doing this possible interview that you have some experiences. Um, how, yeah, man. How yeah. long have you been having those experiences? Has it been a lifelong thing? Has it just been in your adult life? Um, it's actually been like, it's been not necessarily lifelong, but I mean, shit, probably since like middle school, man, I've, I've experienced some stuff and have had like people around me experience stuff and, you know, it's, it's pretty trippy, man, like for sure. And like, I always kind of just thought it was like, oh, well maybe it's me or, you know, like, and these people like when they're around me, like they see things or hear things or even, you know, just, like, stuff happens, you know? So it's, like, it's, it's it's pretty crazy. But, yeah, probably about the most, like, almost all my life been having some weird experiences. Okay. And what's the most vivid experience that you've had that you you remember to this day? <laughs> that's a, that's a, a good one. Uh, so it was Christmas of... 2016 I remember it exactly because um, we were at my aunt's house and so everybody's all gathered around you know family cousins everything like that and um, uh, so they have like a long hallway everybody's chopping it up I got to go to the restroom and whatnot and I remember just seeing like a uh, a person walks from my aunt's room into the hallway restroom and you hear the door close and I like physically see it close. And so I was like, oh man, I got to go to the restroom, you know? And so I was like, all right, I'll wait, I'll wait. So like 30 minutes go by and I'm like, man, they're still in the restroom. And I'm like, you know, I asked my aunt, I go, Aunt Rachel, who's in the restroom that's taking so long? She was all, nobody's in the restroom. I go, Aunt Rachel, somebody walked into the restroom. I literally see them and they close the door right behind them and you know I don't want to go over there and bug them and she's like no and I go yeah go look and sure enough she walks down the hallway doors closed lights on you know you can hear the fan going on mm-hmm. and she knocks and she's like you know uh, she calls out to my grandpa which is her dad and she goes dad you in there and 
you know, nothing comes back, nothing comes back. She, so, you know, she knocks again, Dad, you all right? You know, because he's on in the years. And so she's thinking maybe something happened. Right. And he doesn't answer. Well, when she does it the second time, my grandpa walks in from outside from smoking a cigarette. <laughs> and so she was like, well, if he's not in there, then, you know, what the heck? You know, so she opens the door. All the lights are on. You know, the ceiling fan's going. She couldn't open the door. She kind of, like, had to force it. And, yeah, nobody was in there. And she just, like, looked at me, and I go, yeah, I saw somebody walk in there. And, she, and you know, she was, like, you know, questioning it. Right. So that was one of, that was one of the instances. So, you know, still same day, a little bit later on in the day, um, we're all sitting down in the living room, you know, conversating about, uh, about to get ready to open gifts. Well, I'm talking to my aunt and she's, you know, to my right side and we have a clear view of like the couch and everything and how everything's set up. You come down the hallway and you make a sharp right and, you know, there's, there's a living room and then the couch is set up against the wall. Well, me and my aunt are conversating and I see something like a black shadow come around the corner and like reach over the couch and then it just goes around the corner and then uh, comes back. But it looked like a hand was reaching for, for the couch. And my aunt and me both dead, like, like stop talking and we look at each other like did you just see that and I go see I told you I saw somebody walk into the restroom and you know she 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 was freaked man she like turned white and I was like I thought I was the only one that saw it but sure enough she she seen it and she was just like freaked man because like where where the hand was reaching uh, my cousin's boyfriend was sitting, and it looked like the hand was, like, going to reach towards him, and then it just pulled back right away. Wow, man, that's intense, so bro. That, yeah, so that was, that was like, you know, a couple instances that happened on the same day that were, that were pretty trippy. Now, when you saw this entity going into the bathroom, did it look like a regular, like, flesh-and-blood person? Or Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it was like it, a full-blown like apparition, like, huh? Yeah, it looked like full woman, like somebody, like, you know, that I could have sworn it was like one of my cousin's, you know, boyfriends or, you know, whatever. And I was like, huh, okay, okay. Oh, yeah, like, because usually you hear about the, oh, yeah, it was Black Shadow or this and this and that. Right. No, man, I, I mean, I saw it like clear as day, it looked like somebody that I can go up to you, shake their hand and, you know, that be done with it, you know, introduce myself. But yeah, nope, it wasn't the case on that. <laughs> wow, man, that's that's a good one, brother. On Christmas of of none other things. Yeah, yeah, man. That, <laughs> that's that's a pretty trip that yeah, that's a pretty tripped out incident to happen on Christmas. Until this day, like me and my aunt, like whenever we like we see each other like I was like, Oh yeah, you remember that Christmas time when, you know, we seen that a black hand like shadow like going around the corner she's all yep yep i'll never forget that because she still lives in the house where that oh that, wow uh, that stuff took took place at yeah oh so she's probably waking up every day waiting to see it again huh 
Yeah, probably. And what's crazy is because, like, you know, you hear about, like, you know, apparitions and everything and, you know, flowing water and everything like that. Well, where she lives, uh, she lives in, like, Reedley, which isn't too far from here. And so where she lives, it's uh, the King's River flows through. And up top, there's the cemetery. And uh, in the middle of the partition, there's the King's River. And then she lives right down there in that area. So, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, apparitions or, you know, spirits, you know, moving from say, uh, the cemetery to like that area, it's, it's pretty crazy. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned the water thing because there's a theory out there that, um, you know, water, like rivers, lakes, things of that nature have like a higher EMF field. And that, mm-hmm. you know, spirits can use that energy from those higher frequency or higher EMF field areas and kind of, you know, uh, be better at uh, manifesting themselves and drawing power from that energy source to, like, you know, do what they do. So it's, yeah. it's interesting that you mentioned that. Another one that they talk about a lot is, like, railroad tracks or, like, uh, yeah, in a yeah, way yeah. that trains travel through. So, yeah, it's mm-hmm. definitely as good a theory as any as to why that particular spot would have more activity yeah it's 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 definitely crazy because now that i think about it like another experience that i had at my friend andy's house who lives in the same area like by my aunt which is like a couple blocks away like i had an experience at his house also so i'm like kind of thinking now that like Maybe it's that neighborhood because, you know, the cemetery so close, the water so close, you know, it's just, you know, all these people's houses are, you know, kind of somewhat affected by, you know, these apparitions or spirits traveling, you know? Right. Conditions are perfect, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a good story, yeah, man. Yeah. And then it's interesting, too, because, you know, we don't, traditionally in modern times, we don't think of Christmas time as being a time for, like, ghost stories and things like that. But in reality, if you take it back to, like, the Victorian era, um, back in the day, that was definitely part, thanks in part to the spiritualism movement. It was a huge part of the holidays is, like, sitting around telling ghost stories during Christmas. You know, typically we save that for camping or maybe on Halloween. But, yeah, definitely back in the day they they were swapping some good ghost stories around Christmas time, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how fitting that that happened on Christmas, and here we are talking about it, you know? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, And then the second time it manifested, it was a shadow entity. So it makes me wonder if it was to do with the same entity, or maybe it was two separate entities, or what was going on there? Yeah, yeah, because um, the second time it manifested, it wasn't a whole body apparition. It was just like an arm and a hand that came around from the corner. And, And the way I can explain it is just like, you know how, like, when your shadow gets cast onto a wall, that's that's how it, it came around, like, and, like, started reaching for my cousin's boyfriend, but, you know, there was nobody that could cast a shadow right there, you know, and, like, how everything was, you know, you, the, uh, it, it, it didn't, you know, all the, all the stuff didn't add up to, to, you know, make it to where something like that could happen right you know and like that's why like me and my aunt were just kind of like freaked out a little bit like you know twice in one day all right come on here you know 
you know, something's going on. Yeah, I believe that, man. Um, now, as far as religious beliefs go, do you have a certain religious belief that makes it easier or more difficult for you to believe in, um, you know, apparitions or spirits or anything of that nature? Um, not necessarily. So, like, with me, like, you know, growing up real young, raised by my grandma, I grew up Catholic. Um, not until I started getting older did I start to become more, like, spiritual and getting in touch with my, uh, my, you know, Native American side and my, and my roots right there and, you know, just becoming a spiritual person, you know, believing that if you do right, you know, you're rewarded in, in the afterlife and, you know, it's not about, you know, repenting or whatever, you know, but I mean, choose, choose whatever you may want, but, you know, I, I think if you are, if you keep an open mind as to, you know, um, the afterlife or, you know, these, you know, entities or manifestations that, you know, can occur, then I think you're more perceptive to, you know, experiencing those kind of situations. If, right. you know, you walk around and like, oh, yeah, it ain't going to happen, it ain't going to happen, you know, the kind of like seeing as believing kind of thing, you know, it, I, I really don't believe that you're going to be able to experience the, uh, the kind of... Uh, uh, situations that you know open-minded people would you know experience right almost like you're you're shutting it down before it could even happen as to just being you know a little sensitive to it and kind of leaving it open for possibility and then it just kind of finds you on its own exactly exactly and you know what like i mean like I said, not until I started becoming, you know, in touch with my more spiritual side and getting in, in touch with my, like, ancestry and everything did, like, I start really, like, you know, start to open and welcome things, you know, certain situations, certain experiences, you know? Right. And um, uh, what tribe is your uh, your ancestry hailing from? So, uh, my tribe is, uh, the Choinumni tribe. So, uh, it's up there, um, by Pine Flat Dam. We had a little bit of land, but, um, during, like, that time in that period, I believe our tribe owned pretty much all the way from, uh, what is, I guess, like, uh, up in the hills, I guess, like, not necessarily Dunlap area, but, like, up there towards Pine Flat, all the way down into, like, Reedley, Dinuba, Parlier area, so quite okay. a bit, you know, and so, yeah, yeah. That's cool, man, I'm, I'm glad you, um, you're aware of your, your heritage like that, and you're, you're open to, you know, embracing that, not a lot of people are like that nowadays. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, before you had this incident, would you consider yourself a believer before that, or were you skeptical up until that point, and then having this incident is kind of what propelled you more into the interest of the paranormal, or what was your beliefs before? Uh, so, beliefs for me before were kind of along the lines of, like, how, you know, I just explained, you know, seeing is believing, but, um... Uh, I did have experiences when I was uh, young, but 
being that young, I really didn't like comprehend anything and take into consideration, you know, like, uh, you know, like apparitions and like afterlife and everything like that. So I kind of just like shrugged it off, like not until, like I said, when I was like, when I got older and like I started like welcoming like certain things and finding a, a not necessarily a logical explanation, but a more like spiritual explanation, like, oh, well, maybe this is why that happened, or, you know, this is why this is happening, or, you know, I'm seeing this, you know? Yeah. All right, man. Well, hey, man, thanks for coming on today. I appreciate it. Um, if you ever want to come back, man, just hit me up. If there's a particular subject that we do on the show that you hear that you like, uh, you know, let me know. We'll have you back on as a guest. Oh, yeah, for sure, man. I mean, I got plenty more um, in the experiences that have, that have happened to me, especially, like, when I was younger and, you know, family members that have experienced stuff, too. So, yeah, yeah. if you ever, if you ever down for, you know, getting deeper into it, you know, I'm, I'm here, I'm more than welcome to come back, man. Yeah, absolutely, man. I appreciate that. Um, you know, once this Corona stuff lifts and we can actually be face to face again, I'm definitely going to be having a lot of more um, recording sessions. Then uh, I have a buddy of mine that's going to come on and actually be a co-host for the show as well. So once we get right on, right on. you know uh, our stuff together a little bit better after the Corona uh, quarantine is lifted, I'm definitely going to be having some face to face meetings and getting to a you know, a little bit deeper, more discussions than we are over the phone. Um, cause you yeah. know, the, the face to face experience to me is always better. Cause you know, you, you're in that room with someone, you got that energy flowing, you know, it's just going to make for better conversation, but I do appreciate yeah, you taking the time, bro, to come on with me today. Um, and talk with me. I know it's been a while since we've talked, um, pretty much since we worked together, which is a while now. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, yeah. It's been a definite minute. But, yeah, man, definitely uh, don't be a stranger. You got my number now. I have yours, so we'll stay in touch, brother. All right, for sure, man. All right, man, thanks. All right, not a problem, James. You take it easy, man. You too, man. All right. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that just about wraps it up for the episode on poltergeists. It was well over an hour of content, and we still barely scratched the surface. So it's definitely a topic we will be revisiting in a future episode. Stick around eventually for the Poltergeists 2 episode. We will be discussing this one again because there's still a whole lot to discuss and a whole lot to uncover. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you guys have enjoyed the episode. What do you guys think is behind Poltergeist activity? Is it a psychic response? to teenagers in stress is it its own thing is it just a different kind of ghost have you guys had any first-hand poltergeist activity experiences get your stories into the show if you have and if you guys have any story ideas comments concerns or any future topics Get those into the social media accounts or the email. Alright listeners, if you guys would like to contact me at the Monsters Lair, 
you have a few different options. Um, if you'd like to contact me by email, you can email me at jdhutch, the number one, at hotmail.com. Once again, that's jdhutch1 at hotmail.com. If you want to email me any stories, any show ideas, uh, comments, concerns, questions, anything of that nature, feel free to email those to that address. Also, you guys can find me on social media. I'm on Facebook and Instagram. On Facebook, just search for James David Hutchins. I'll pop right up. And on Instagram, I am Trailer Park Monster. That's M-O-N-S-T-A. Trailer Park Monster on Instagram. If you guys want to message me on Facebook or Instagram, feel free. Same thing there. If you guys have any show ideas, comments, concerns, questions, if you guys want to send me in your personal stories of you having a weird encounter or something paranormal, those are always appreciated, and I would look forward to seeing those soon. Hopefully, you guys will be sending those in. Um, eventually, I may have an account that's just for the podcast, but as it is right now, this is pretty much a one-man show. So you might as well contact me directly on my personal social media pages and my personal email. So, yeah, I look forward to seeing those from you guys. Thank you. All right, ladies and gentlemen, as always, at the end of my episodes, I like to give out special thanks to those of you who helped me get the episode out and have contributed to supporting the show. First and foremost, as always, got to give a shout out to my best friend, the chief himself, Mr. Alan Bailey, at Chief Alan Bailey on Instagram. Go and check out his brand, Fly Fresh, at Fly Fresh on Instagram. Support a local Fresno clothing company. Order some merchandise from them. It's going to be great quality. It's going to be awesome work. Also, if you guys need any graphic artwork done at all, Hit up Alan at Chief Alan Bailey on Instagram. Get some awesome designs directly from him. As always, thanks, Alan. Thank you, Uncle Alan. Another very special thank you goes out to Mr. Co-host himself, Add Tom the Nightmare, a.k.a. Tom the Insomniac, a.k.a. Tio Tommy. A.K.A. Tommy Cunningham. Thanks for your support, good buddy. And I can't wait to sit down with you and have you on the mic with me for some of these episodes that we got coming up. As soon as quarantine's over, man, we're going to get together in the lab and brainstorm. Love you, brother. Gracias, Tommy. Another guy I got to shout out is my podcasting brother from another mother, Mr. Polly Manners, a.k.a. The Bearded Breed, at the Bearded Breed Podcast on Anchor.fm. It's pretty much my brother's show. If you guys love anything to do with nerdist culture, whether it's board games, comics, movies, D&D, role-playing, video games, wrestling, superheroes... Anything of that nature, nerd culture is now pop culture, and this man has your connect for everything to do with pop culture. Definitely go and check out the Bearded Breed podcast, now on at Spotify, 
and at anchor.fm. Thanks, Bearded Breed. You're the man. And last but definitely not least, I got to give a huge thank you out to all of my listeners. Thank you guys for tuning in again to another episode. If this was your first episode and your first experience diving into the depths of the monster's lair, I can't thank you enough. If you guys enjoy the show, if you've been enjoying the episodes so far, please spread the word. The Monster's Lair on at Spotify, at Anchor.fm, and soon to be iTunes Podcasts. As always, thank you all. I love you. Okay, ladies and gentlemen. You are brave enough to dive into the depths. Come visit me in the monster's lair and make it out safely on the other side. I will now unleash your shackles, allow you to stand up, and allow you to now be free to escape the monster's lair. <laughs>